everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? My name is Naomi Schaefer Riley, and I am a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. Today, we wanted to talk to you about some of the issues in the news today regarding children. And the first piece we wanted to talk about is a piece that I wrote a few weeks ago called Is Foster Care Racist? Yeah, Naomi, I, I had read the piece and I, I actually was very surprised to see that there's evidently a growing movement of people who are advocating that we essentially abolish the foster care system on the premise that it's racist and somehow it's actually better to leave kids in dysfunctional homes. What was the thrust of your piece? So the piece begins with a call that was made in Los Angeles, actually, at the L.A. County Commission for Children and Families. A member of that commission told her colleagues that it was time for abolishing foster care. And as you said, this is kind of a movement that is now echoing and just running a couple of steps behind the abolish the police movement. Essentially, it's sort of you have two things that are coming together here. This idea that children are better off left in their homes and not being removed to foster care. And also this idea that foster that the foster care system is racist. And they've kind of been merged into one thing. Because a disproportionate number of children who are in foster care are Black or Hispanic children, that means that we are removing too many children. But we're not removing kids for no reason. Isn't there evidence of reasons for removal? That's, of course, what's there. I mean, this idea that we're willy-nilly taking children out of their home for no reason, that this is a bunch of, I don't know, middle-aged, nosy white women who just wander into the home of Black people and just say, I don't think you're doing a very good job raising your child, I'm going to remove them, is a myth. I mean, as we see so many myths about what police departments are doing, we see a lot of myths about what child welfare services are doing. And the way that they are actually able to continue to propagate these myths is that we actually don't do a very good job with our data, I think, is the first big problem. So you'll see a lot of claims by the people who want to abolish foster care that children are being removed only only because of neglect. So there are two ways, two reasons to remove a child, major reasons, which are abuse, which everybody understands, you know, actually physically harming a child in some way, or neglect. And people have decided that neglect is actually just a code word for poverty, that we're just removing kids from homes because their parents are poor. Neglect actually, though, when you dig into the statistics, means something much more serious. It actually usually means some kind of substance abuse going on in the home, whether that's drug or alcohol abuse. Sometimes neglect also means a cover for severe mental illness on the part of a parent. But you actually see when you dig into the statistics that neglect is actually responsible for a large majority of child fatalities in this country. So neglect is not some harmless thing that we can simply fix by giving people more money, which seems but, to be... But what would be, the, what would be the rationale anyway for leaving kids who are being neglected? I still don't even get that. Well, the theory is if you just gave these parents some more food stamps or a housing voucher or just cash assistance, that they would be fine, that they would be able to take care of these kids, that the only reason that they're not able to take care of these kids adequately is because they're poor. And I would argue that the reason that they're not able to adequately take care of these kids is they're not making good decisions, often because they are, you know, they're high. 
And especially you see this effect on young children even more than older children. I mean, typically, you know, a a 10-year-old, even if their parent is somewhat incapacitated, can often do the basic things to make sure that they stay out of danger. But, you know, a child under the age of three, for instance, which is where you see most of the neglect fatalities and severe cases of neglect, you know, doesn't know all the things that, you know, we parents of people, (laughs) we parents who've had kids under three know how to keep your kid away from a stove, how to keep your kid from having an accident in the bathtub, how to keep your kid from running into the street. I mean, this requires, as any parent of a toddler will tell you, constant attention. And even a little bit of neglect could be severely dangerous. And to your point, I mean, each of the things you're citing has to do with behaviors that ultimately affect children. I mean, you cite a a stunning statistic that Black children are being abused or neglected at a rate more than 50% higher than the general population. You know, if that data is true, then it's not racist if we're now bringing more Black children into foster care, right? Isn't this related to actual behaviors? And it just so happens that the data falls on racial disparities, but it's not because of racism. It seems like it's based on actual behaviors. No, as we've talked about, I mean, there are different family structures in this country that are more associated with, you know, different races. And so the first thing that is highly correlated with abuse of children is the presence of a non-relative male in the home, someone who is not the child's father. That family has about a 10 times higher likelihood of that child being subject to abuse than a child living in a family with two married parents. And that is just, it's a statistic that we cannot get around. And every honest person in the world of child welfare needs to acknowledge that. Having, you know, the mother's boyfriend in a home presents in many cases a real threat to children and a much higher threat to children than the presence of that child's biological father. Are you just blaming the victim, Naomi? Are you just are you just calling out black people and and perpetuating stereotypes? Is I, that the... I, I'm trying not to. I think, you know, what one thing that's worth noting here, and I try to point this out in the piece, is that there's actually a higher rate of domestic violence, of intimate partner violence in the black community. And that is something that's actually widely acknowledged by most commentators. You regularly have people talking about intimate partner violence among Black couples. So why is it that we are allowed to talk about Black women being subject to violence, but we are not allowed to say that Black children are more subject to violence than other children? I, this is something that I really can't swear, but it's certainly, you know, on the, on the list of now we have the you know, things that you, you can say and things that you can't say. This right. sort of presents an interesting contrast, I think. Maybe we should, you know, sort of pivot a little bit because this question keeps coming up of, you know, whether we're talking about racism or we're talking about differences in behaviors. Ian, you wrote a piece a few weeks ago for the Wall Street Journal called The Power of Personal Agency. And you talk in the piece about how the Black community can change its own outcomes and how it has through personal agency and through changes in its own behavior. So, Tell me a little bit about what prompted you to write that article. Yeah, thank you for thank you for bringing that up. I mean, in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, I mean, there's obviously a lot of protest, tumult, unrest, that there's a recognition that police brutality, you know, racial discrimination still exists in our country, and it has to be remedied. And I think there's universal agreement on that front. The question is how? And the dominant narrative that seems to emerge and continues to 
be perpetuated is this idea that black people are really just kind of stuck in this system that is so structurally racist and white supremacy is so dominant that black people as a whole can't move forward until white people essentially renounce their privilege or independently reduce or eliminate these structural barriers. So this idea that white people have all the power and black people have no power is what I was really concerned with. I think in, in the piece, I quote Al Sharpton, who said it in his eulogy of George Floyd, that it's white people that have had their boots on the, the neck of black people for 400 years. And that's the reason that black people can't get ahead. That narrative- As if there's no difference between life under slavery and life today. I mean, the way, you know, these conditions are just conflated as if it's just all one big, you know, boot on the neck. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, the whole point is black kids, nor any kid is born with a boot on their neck, right? And so this is a debilitating narrative. And the reason I wrote the piece is that it completely ignores what you're saying, which is the enormous progress that's been made by a whole host of people, black people, this is the focus of the piece, but through their own recognition that they do have power, even in the face of structural barriers. So in this idea that, you know, black people's efforts are futile in the face of white supremacy, that ignores the literally tens of millions of examples of people who have certainly faced discrimination, faced challenges based on race, and yet are quite comfortably living in the middle class or above, raising their families responsibly. And typically, the behaviors that those Black families, like many other families that are prospering in the United States across race, they've adopted certain behaviors. I think the thing that always is underlying the things that you write is, what is the message this is sending to our kids? And obviously, your role in leadership at a school, this is something that is facing you every day. And so what is the message that is being sent to you have a, you know, seven-year-old, whatever, you know, second grader, you know, and this is the message that they're getting. There is a boot on your neck and there is nothing you could do about this until some white person sitting next to you decides to renounce their privilege. And not just that white person, but pretty much every white person. So you could just twiddle your thumbs for the next God knows how many years forever, waiting for all white people to renounce their privilege. It's debilitating and it's simply untrue. For example, KIPP, the great charter network that's been around for nearly two decades, just retired its slogan, work hard, be nice. And that slogan is so precious to so many of us in the charter world because it represents for young people the power that they do have, that their effort matters and that their character matters. But retiring the slogan, Kip said, well, we're doing so because meritocracy is an illusion. And that is the very thing. It's robbing young people of the very thing that should give them hope, that the ability for them to work hard, do the right things really matters. And it's borne out by the evidence. There's a solid black middle class that has done what is often referred to as the success sequence. They have finished their education, full-time work, marriage then children in that order. A study that was done by the American Enterprise Institute a couple years ago showed that 91% of Black people that made those decisions in that order completely avoided poverty and entered the middle class. So when we know these things, these are the tools that we need to impart to young people as opposed to 
a message of you're helpless in the face of structural barriers. As you can tell from the work hard, be nice. I mean, you know, these tools can actually be translated into the language of a second grader. Like you, these are not as complicated as you think. I mean, they're not, they're not easy, but the message is not complicated. And what has happened now is we have completely muddied the waters and made it seem like, you know, this is an impossible feat. And there are so many factors beyond your control. Yeah. Yeah, What's happening is that everything is being now through the prism of race. And as opposed to behavior being a key factor in your ultimate life outcomes. Right. And so we wanted to we wanted to end by just talking a little bit about this insane graphic that came out from one of the Smithsonian museums, amazingly, that described for us the difference between white and black thinking. Ian, you describe sort of the, the most outrageous things that appeared to you on this graphic. And it's hard to pick. It is hard to pick, but I have to say the most diabolical white supremacist could not have masterminded a better plan than to get a black institution like the National Museum of African American History and Culture to promote a document that could have been produced by the KKK. So in this document, the definition of whiteness, the behaviors that are related to whiteness are clear, linear thinking, the belief that hard work is linked to success, the nuclear family, these are all aspects of whiteness. So of course, the corollary is, well, then what's the definition of blackness? Because the implication is laziness or a non-nuclear family or that we don't believe in hard work. It is honestly the most demeaning thing. And if it had been written by anyone else, if it had been written by a white person, that person would likely now be canceled, be accused of being a supremacist, this topsy-turvy thinking that when we only see the world through race and ascribing positive elements to whiteness and negative elements to blackness is leading down a, a, a very dangerous pathway. Now, we should say that the museum has subsequently apologized for this, but what I found so strange was that the museum didn't seem to actually be able to verbalize why it was that this was a problem. They say, education is core to our mission, and we thank you for helping us be better. But there's really not a lot of understanding. They cannot articulate why it is that this graphic was a problem. And if they did, then they would have, you know, the entire woke movement come down on them. So they're in this, you know, sort of ridiculous position now. But yes, the white supremacists of, you know, the the Klan, you know, could not have come up with a better graphic to use. And it's it is so bizarre. But again, I think we need to come back to the idea that these are messages through our museums, through our educational institutions that are being sent to children. And the, the idea that we are raising children in an environment where we are teaching them that rationality is a white thing, that they have no power over their destiny. I mean, are you kidding me? It it is. I really, are you kidding me? And it's false and it's dangerous. And what's scary right now is that for those of us, even having this conversation, there are people maybe listening to say, thank you for saying this, Ian and Naomi. But if I said it, I'm terrified because I could be canceled. And so how many of those emails do you get a day? Because I yes, get a lot of them. <laughs> I get a lot of them. And so what we have to say to people is now's the time not to shrink in a corner. Yeah. You actually have to represent these views because the bullying mentality is going to overtake rationality. And, and who loses? 
it's the very low income kids of all races yeah. that we care about who will yeah. lose the sense that they can make it in America through hard work, determination, decisions around family, education, faith. And that's why we have to work so hard. Well, on that note, this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thanks so much for joining us. You can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me? wherever you get your podcasts or on the AEI podcast channel. Thanks so much. Thank you.